Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Ray Langraff, and he is founder and CEO of Island, which is a consumer company, a cannabis company based in Southern California. We're going to learn more about his background, about Island, and about how he created it, and the state of the industry, and what's going on in California from a cannabis point of view. So with that, Ray, welcome to the program. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So why don't we talk a little bit about your background and get a sense of you and your kind of professional background, and then we can talk about Island and how all that came about. What was the backstory? Sure. So uh, I spent the first five years of my career in asset management and private equity and quickly learned that uh, I liked being on the building side better. It was, mm-hmm. it was getting disappointing when we get to write checks into these entrepreneurs getting to go out and build fun stuff. So in 2007, I hopped ship and went to the other side of the fence and landed in, uh, in Silicon Valley in a, in a technology startup. Was fortunate enough to, to grow that business, learn a lot along the way, exit it to some, some other folks where I, I learned even more yep. and I've had a few others, others since then. Um, in 2016, we sold one of the businesses that we, we'd been building for about four years. That one was more of a turnaround than a startup. Okay. Uh, 
but uh, but we're we're looking at the space and, and trying to understand where we wanted to play next. Along the way, I developed kind of two rules that were a guidepost for for what I wanted to spend my time on, and and really that was one who I wanted to spend time with, so team, and then two what I wanted to work on. Yeah. Uh, had to be an interesting project, and feel very fortunate to to be a place in my career where we could do those things. Yeah. But looking looking at that uh, kind of in parallel. Got into the business back in 2012. My wife's family is fourth generation ag from Washington. Okay. Um, and they decided to take a very small portion of a very large farm that they have up there and uh, and add a crop essentially to the mix. Uh-huh. And so got, got into this more as a curiosity than anything. Interesting. That it was a very interesting entrepreneurial space to play. And so as we were looking at what to do next, uh, a few years later in 2016, uh, decided to to make cannabis my full time job just because I saw the entrepreneurial opportunity and got really excited about building in in such a wide open white space. So the and the technology stuff you had been doing had nothing to do with cannabis. I mean, this was this was a big shift for you. Nothing to do with cannabis. Um, we we jumped around on a couple different things. The very first one was essentially helping small businesses create an online presence before websites were really popular. So kind of like Facebook or business, they'd go in, they'd have a set of tools to publish content, establish a presence, attract website traffic and customers, Got and it. really have, have a voice to that consumer. Mm-hmm. That one was backed by uh, Barry Diller's IAC. Oh, yeah. And uh, and then, and then, uh, you know, after that, got started on another company that uh, Facebook ended up acquiring before before we really got to formalize anything or bring a product to market. And uh, and and then found my way over into um, a turnaround with uh, with an asset that had been acquired out of Dun and Bradstreet, which is the largest and oldest data and and um, uh, business credit company in the world. So yeah. we built a whole SaaS platform, took uh, took what was essentially a transactional business. Re, re-architected the entire thing on a new technology platform, made it a monthly subscription and, and helped businesses access credit and manage uh, manage their credit and credibility online through through that company. Yeah, interesting. So when you looked at cannabis, I, mean, I guess, how much was this? You know, you've had an exit. You can kind of, uh, you know, have a little bit more fun or play around with some ideas versus, hey, this was like this is a great business opportunity. I mean, give us a give us a frame of how you originally kind of got into the cannabis space. Yeah, we, you know, you hear the term green rush thrown around a lot. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is not um, the reason that we got into this. We got into it because we thought we could build something special, and yeah. had a, we had a real opportunity to put a mark on something. So. Yeah. Um, this this isn't a new business by any means, or a new industry by any means. Yeah. Uh, this this industry has been around for a really long time, but the shift from black market into regulated market is creating an entrepreneurial opportunity that just couldn't be ignored. Yeah. And uh, and and to be totally frank with you, it just seemed like a lot more fun than building another tech company. Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. So so give us some details about Island. I mean, what's why um you know why the company like how how did you kind of choose the particular niche or the particular strategy or or part of the market that you you entered? Why that market? Why or why that niche? What was the opportunity? you saw? Sure. So I, I'm born and raised in California, lived here for 39 years. In, in California, you get access to the plant at a very early age. So it was never one of those things that had an extreme stigma for yeah. me, but like maybe uh, in other parts of the country. So didn't really have have uh, have any kind of um, hurdle to jump there. In 2014, uh, I actually started 
prototyping different products um, under this island brand concept uh-huh. in response to what we saw happening on the, the farm up in Washington where uh, commoditization was starting to set in on, oh, yeah. on the creation level and never actually got the brand up into Washington and, and launched it up there. Instead, had an opportunity to, to have the product and brand in, in a very select group of retailers in California. Mm-hmm. Saw traction that it was getting there, which was, to be fair, very, very slow at the time, but but enough that we we saw some product market fit and believed that we wanted to spend our time investing in, in growing growing this thing. So taking like one step back, we feel like the Island brand really speaks to a broad consumer base that was largely being ignored at the time. Mm-hmm. And we could build a great company around a great brand. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so tell me, so tell me about the brand. So what, what is the brand? How did you come up with the brand? What is the brand not? I mean, as you're kind of looking at, you know, where, where brands are going in the cannabis space, why this one? So Island is a brand was born. Um, there's a couple different reasons. One, yeah. mo- most of the, most of the brands, at the time that we launched. So we, we started in 2014, first product went to market in 2015. The concept of a consumer packaged good hadn't really taken hold in the market yet. It was mm-hmm. still largely flour being being purchased over the counter in dispensaries. Yep. Maybe the closest products that you'd see were like joints that came in a plastic bag and had the equivalent of an Avery label on them. <laughs> exactly. And, and so we looked at it and said, well, this is eventually gonna be CPG. The brand should stand for something. We learned from Washington that a lot of product that was being grown wasn't passing certain um, health and safety standards. Yeah. And so very early on, we wanted Island, the brand, to speak to a consumer audience that wasn't really being reached at the time. And, and so that's the reason there's no green color in it. There's no cannabis leaf. We don't uh-huh. have money or any of those things um, as part of the brand. Um, so really more of like lifestyle positioning. Yeah. And, uh, and then we wanted to stand for for something special. So at that time, um, that meant actually testing all of the product and making sure that it was fit for human consumption. Mm-hmm. Because California didn't have a, a regulatory environment that, that uh, you know very clearly laid out the black and white delineation between what was safe, mm-hmm. we used Washington state standards. And, uh, and that allowed us to go yeah. and speak to, to retailers about how oh, we're taking a lot of extra effort to make sure what ultimately becomes an island product is safe for the consumers that they're selling to. Yeah, interesting. And, and tell me about the product side. Like, as you looked at, you know, the, at least the initial products or kind of your product development strategy, I mean, what, I guess, what products did you choose? How did you come up with those or how did you decide on those? And, and what is the kind of product ethos or the, the things that you're focused on from a product point of view? Sure. So we, we started with pre-roll. The, I think the big driver there was there weren't a lot of other product types then. And most of most of what was being purchased was flour. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-roll essentially the ready-to-consume format. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we saw an opportunity to be early there and to really productize that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we today have a vape line and, um, and we do packaged flour. Pre-roll and, and vape are probably the two categories that we're most excited about over the longer term because we, we see flour ultimately shrinking as a category and, and vape and pre-roll uh, actually taking some of that market share. Mm-hmm. On the vape side, uh, we were really patient about the, the hardware partner that we chose there you know, with it, without really disparaging any other kind of <laughs> Yeah. The, the 510 uh, hardware experience was, was a tough one for us to wrap our heads around. 
I'd be in dispensaries in the early days doing the patient appreciation days and everything and got to the point where I was just starting to count the number of customers that would come in to return a battery or a, yeah. or, or something. And one day I decided to literally start counting every number of customers that came through and then the number that were, were there to return 510 hardware. And it was over 20%. And so I, I did that again several more times and, and saw similar results and, and came to the conclusion that we just couldn't build the island brand around a unreliable consumer experience. Yeah. About a year later, we were fortunate enough to, to do a deal with PAX and really believe in the PAX hardware format and what they've built and, and stand by that today. I think we see less than 1% failure rates with, with PAX hardware. Overall, really, really good, consistent consumer experience. We've done the crazy things where we leave pods in ultra-hot cars in the sun. Throughout <laughs> the day. Things are leaking or what might happen, and, and PAX uh, continues to stand up to the test of time. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and where, in terms of product strategy, you know, just generally going forward, what are the, like, as, as you look at where some of these products are going, what do you think are the, the, the future things you're investigating? Yeah, great, great question. So without speaking to format necessarily, yeah. Uh, I think we were extremely early on the lower potency side, so so much so that there was a, a pretty serious headwind since the market really rewards potency and I think still does largely today. Yeah. Over time, we'd like to see that shift. Um, we we kind of look at it as the equivalent of grain alcohol in, in some senses where you, know, you don't show up to a party uh, and just start drinking grain alcohol because it's... <laughs> uh, Ever clear. You don't start doing 190 or uh, 90, 90% alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these things should be, to have a socially acceptable product where people can consume responsibly, there, there should be a capability to kind of throttle your intake and, and make sure um, that you're enjoying your experience. Yeah. And so over time, I think we'll, we'll see people start to reward the quality of the product overall and, and the overall characteristics of the plant and not just potency. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious with your background uh, in tech and in finance and, and you know, a fairly rich, extensive experience of building companies and scaling them and exiting. And what what parts of that have you, I guess, leveraged most, or that have been kind of helpful for you most? What parts have had no, you know, had had no help? And then what what has been kind of surprising for you in terms of things you learned before that you didn't think you were going to apply, but have ended up being, you know, really key for you in terms of building building this company? Sure. So. This one's almost like a 40 leg stool. Um, <laughs> in, in some ways, the experience that I had is is not relevant at all. And in other ways, it, it couldn't be more relevant. Yeah. Perfect example of that. I, I think when you have the kind of growth rates that we're seeing today in our business and in the industry in general, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of friction as, as you grow that quickly. So you know, hiring, communications, all, all of those things uh, just lead to uh, a controlled, chaotic environment. Mm-hmm. Without any context of doing startups before, I, I think I might look at this and say like, oh my God, this is absolutely crazy. Yeah. But having, having been through this several times before, I look at it and say, wow, this, this actually really isn't any different. Yeah. What's, what I don't think anyone could have really prepared us for was um, how to deal with the things that we take for granted. So access to capital and banking, as yeah. an example. Are, are very, very challenging. Um, having to do payroll and cash when you've got 80 employees is, is really, really tough. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're, we're the kind of team that welcomes uh, a regulated environment. We, we think that ultimately over time that'll level the playing field and creates an opportunity you know, for us to shine. Mm-hmm. But the zigs and zags on the road to get there have been extremely challenging and doing that with without some of the, the core capabilities that 
other other startups get to rely on, like like banking as an example, uh, just just creates an a, an exceptional challenge. Yeah. Uh, on the talent side, I think our backgrounds have given us the ability to attract talent earlier and in different ways than maybe some of our competitors. So we've really tried to use that as an advantage. And we're really starting to pick up steam there, which is great. But we're also seeing a lot of interest now um, from people in traditional roles coming into the cannabis space. So recruiting's getting, you know, starting to get a little bit easier, and, mm, uh, yeah. and, and building the team for 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 the right people at the right time is starting to get a little bit easier too. Yeah. Anything you've noticed about bringing people from outside the cannabis space into the cannabis space in terms of, you know, where, um, what you need to do to kind of get them ready or to kind of level them up. I mean, what's the, what's the transition they need to go through to be successful and, you know, highly productive in a, in a cannabis business. I say this partly tongue in cheek, but in a lot of ways you have to throw logic out the window in this industry right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we we've brought really really amazing people in from from great places, and they've tried to apply the same things that they were doing exceptionally well in other areas to cannabis, and yeah. and have just seen lots of breakage points. And uh, so, you know, failure or inability to adapt has definitely been a hurdle. Yeah, that things just do not work the way that you would think that they work, and. There, there's an aspect to that that is perseverance and uh, really trying to understand the market and put time into finding the, the ways to solve the problems. And then there's the other aspect of, well, let's just throw up our hands and not fight the headwind anymore. We'll, we'll come back to that at another point. And knowing, knowing which decision to make at which time has been pretty critical. Yeah, I, I certainly find that, um, and this is kind of no judgment factor to it as well. I think a lot of folks coming out of other industries come in here and they get frustrated, and then they start kind of judging the the industry, judging these other companies, judging the process of saying, "Well, this isn't professional," or you know, that we can't work like this. It's like, well, you, you kind of have to adapt. You kind of have to like not make make it work. You know, get through it. It's a it's an evolving industry. You know, it's just kind of the nature of where we are with some of this stuff. And and some people can do that, and some people can't. Some people are just sort of set in their ways. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And we don't we don't have to look at this as this bad or negative thing. Yeah. It's just the state of this industry, yeah. and every industry has its own unique challenges. Yeah, exactly. So, so talk to me about the regulation side a little bit and how you've kind of managed that. So, you know, the the regulation process has, you know, certainly there's the the laws, and then there's the application of the laws and the kind of changes to the laws. Where where have you found sort of the biggest challenges from a business point of view in kind of staying top on uh, staying on top of it? You know, how to implement, when to implement. What are your what are your kind of learnings there? Well, you can just you can throw long term planning out the window. <laughs> uh, so you've got to plan for everything in the short term because you're one regulatory decision away from having all of your packaging inventory be irrelevant yeah. or um, or you know practices that you invested in on on the manufacturing floor, equipment that you invested in, um, you know, not working for for the new environment. Yeah. So. It's it's difficult because long term planning is actually how you you pull off some really great successes, and we've had a look at that more as like chapters where we still have a long term plan, but yeah. we have to continually revisit and gut check that long term plan as we go through each chapter. Probably so yeah, probably the most challenging thing is just the ever changing landscape of the regulations, not the regulations themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of you know you're never quite sure how long they're going to be in place and what what's going to what nuance is going to shift on you that changes yeah, a machinery or a label or some part of your process. Yeah. So talk to me about the, the capital side of it. So how, I guess, 
what are what are the challenges from uh, an investment point of view from sort of deploying the money that you have? Are you you know looking for external capital? How does how does that part of it work for you as a as a company? So so cannabis is a very capital hungry and capital intensive endeavor. You know you're you're inevitably going to make some mistakes and have to write some stuff off just due to all of the regulatory changes that occur. So you have to you have to be over budgeted for that. The environment's constantly changing as well. So you know, we've we've had instances where funding's been lined up, lined up, and and um, we've had to delay it because you know Jeff Sessions came into office and people didn't know what to do, or yeah. or um, the bank account that we thought we were going to have opened the next day didn't happen on time, and and that uh, and that created some delays. So overall, I'd, I'd say the the biggest challenge we faced on the capital side is kind of the ever changing landscape that the investors also have to wrap their heads around. We've spent a lot of time educating some some very well to do investors, but yeah. but timing just wasn't there. Our capital challenges are are certainly different than than many others as well. But we saw an environment where we had to cobble together, um, you know, smaller financing round with a lot of smaller checks in six months shift to uh, folks wanting to come in and write a single check to take an entire rep yeah. and, and, and then everything in between. Right. Um, yeah. And then six months later, that environment changed as, as things, uh, as things settled down in Canada in a little bit. And then mm-hmm. three months later, things roared back in Canada and, and everyone's <laughs> ready to write checks again. So yeah. um, like, like a lot of life, timing is really, really important. And we try not to let any of that stuff bother us. We're we're not building anything for the short term. This isn't about a flip. This isn't about an exit for us. We feel like we've got an opportunity to build something really special around the island brand. Yeah. And by focusing on the long term and being a little bit overcapitalized, we feel like we can roll with the punches and, and make sure we find the right capital partners to grow for the long term. Yeah. And so talk to me about the capital partners. I mean, there's there's a lot of money kind of coming in and out of the cannabis space right now. I mean, what do you find that there are is the money coming in ready for cannabis? Or are they not ready for cannabis? I mean, if you're if you're an investor or listening to this, or you're thinking about becoming an investor in the cannabis space, listening to this, what kind of advice, guidance, thoughts would you give them in terms of you know th- that side of the equation? You know, really making sure you're ready and able to to be a cannabis investor. I, I think it goes without saying that everyone who's interested in investing in cannabis should be prepared for an extreme amount of due diligence. Yeah. So I just wouldn't recommend getting involved unless you're prepared to, to put the work in on the due diligence and really understand you know, the, the bet that you're making. Mm-hmm. That said, we've kind of migrated from, I think, what was you know high net worth individuals and angel investors yep. into the family office crowd. And, and those guys were, were really getting educated the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. As they kind of got educated, we saw some some smaller funds take form, and so the, the early innings of institutional capital. And I think now we're starting uh, to see um, larger institutional capital players um, really take an interest in the space and, and get educated. Yeah. So um, so it's, it's it's really interesting. the other thing is uh, I remember like about 18 months ago I was doing calls with family offices all over the United States. Probably I'd have to go back and look at the data, but probably something like 15 to 20 states we'd talk to family offices in. And as we saw things shift kind of around summer last year, we just saw a lot of that get aggregated into New York. And you know, having raised money in Sandhill and Silicon Valley yeah. and uh, and gone through that process on the, on the tech side, um, you always hear about how that aggregation occurs in New York. And it was really interesting just to, to see that vacuum created yeah. and see New York do what, what it does best. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that that is now at least in in um, a lot of folks in California's world become like the the center of of financing for the future. 
Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting kind of uh, dynamic that that we've certainly seen here. And what do you think? I mean, give us a sense of timing and how the next 12, 24 months of kind of that side of the business is likely to play out. I mean, where do you how how quickly do you think the market is going to develop for um, the funding side? I, I think it's going to happen very, very quickly. Yeah. We we're seeing large CPG guys take interest. We've already seen alcohol and tobacco make some pretty significant moves. Yep. Uh, I think that that was put squarely on the radar of of a lot of the big guys in New York. And uh, and what we're seeing here in California today is is a lot of interest in consolidation. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of money sitting on balance sheets in Canada. There's a lot of money sitting on balance sheets in ancillary industries and and in private equity firms. And I think a lot of that money is going to be put to work very, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the market a little bit. I mean, we're kind of still in this state by state situation in the US. Uh, you know, Canada is coming online. Uh, we're... I mean, how do you see this kind of playing out? And and as you think about, or as the you know the, the future possibility of you know federal legalization of the cannabis market in the U.S., how does that impact your strategy, the brand? I mean, we'll, give me a sense of how you kind of frame that or how you think about it. Sure. Um, so we believe federal legalization is is really a when, not an if, mm-hmm. at this point. The the disparity has gotten pretty ridiculous with how many states have state sanction activity in in some yeah. way, shape. Form. Yep. So at some point, the folks in Washington are, are going to to make a change. When that happens, uh, we you know we can throw throw darts there. We'd always thought that we wouldn't see a lot of this acceleration happen until we got closer to federal legalization. And and I think if I could kind of correct that statement and go back a few years when we developed the hypothesis, mm-hmm. I, I would I would nudge myself to think more about um, the anticipation of federal legalization and what that does to the marketplace. And I think that speaks more accurately to the environment that we see now, hmm. where, where almost everyone agrees that it's imminent and, and going to happen at some point, whether that's two years or five, doesn't really make doesn't really matter because they've moved beyond the risk tolerance to, to get comfortable that they've got to make bets now or, or they're going to be making bets at much bigger valuations later. And they don't really want to do that. Yeah, yeah. And what are the what's the impact for a company like yours on on federal legislation? I mean, where how does it change the the business model or the business dynamics, and then your strategy? Well, in some ways, it, it really helps because it, it clears the path and removes some of the hurdles that, that we don't get access to that other businesses that aren't in the cannabis industry have access to. Mm-hmm. So it does help in some ways. In, in other ways, it brings a lot of the big players into the space a lot faster. Yeah, and and I think you know if you're if you're in the same kind of position that Island is in now, you've got to be thinking about getting bigger faster or, or, you, you know, there's, there's definitely a competitive threat to, to not responding to, to that. Yeah. Yeah. And as this market kind of grows, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by brands because I think that's a, uh, you know, it's this very dynamic part of the, the industry right now, you know, as, as we kind of bring on more and more segments of the market and particularly more segments of the market that have not been traditional cannabis users, how, I mean, talk to me about how brands are going to play a role in this or, or why brands are important from your point of view in terms of development of the market, not only from this aside, but from a consumer point of view. Sure. I think if you look at CPG broadly, brand is really important. A lot of consumers make decisions based on brand because brand is, is supposed to mean something. That's the equity that's created in that brand. Yeah. Quick sidebar on that is yeah. you, know, you you have companies like Brandless that are are literally flipping that on its head, but they're they're doing it in a way where Brandless is becoming a brand that stands. Yeah, exactly. For- 
fan. So, yeah. um, so very so meta. It's, it's an interesting <laughs> conundrum in, in some ways. Yeah. But I, I don't I don't think this looks any different than um, the more mature CPG industries yeah. that we have in play today. So brands that are able to communicate what the brand stands for and to speak to an audience, uh, I, I think will end up um, winning in the long term. Um, I think there's largely um, we're still very much in, in a commodity mindset today because mm-hmm. uh, especially in California, the black market's been around for a very, very long time. There's some deeply ingrained consumer behaviors that aren't going to shift overnight. And especially, you know, given the financial trade off between easily accessible product and highly taxed product. Mm-hmm. So the, it's up to the brands to kind of make their mark and identify you know, what they speak to, who their audience is, and, and why they have a connection with that audience. With Island, we were really trying to speak to the audience that we felt was being ignored in the dispensary market at the time, yeah. which, was, which was people like, like me and you and, and who didn't necessarily uh, you know, wake up every morning and grab the bong and, and uh, play video games all day. Yep. Um, not, not that that's the entire market. There's an entire medicinal aspect of the market as well that yep. relies on, on cannabis as a medicine. Yep. But having spent a lot of time in dispensaries, um, I, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't bifurcate the audience into people that really like getting high and stoned and mm-hmm. people that find real medicinal value in it. Yeah. And I think it's up to the brands to speak to those audiences and then the new audiences that emerge. Island was really meant to be a lifestyle brand that could speak to that broader audience that may not use cannabis every day, all day, but looks at cannabis as a special part of their life. So you know, with Island, we wanted to make products that created moments of happiness. We have a commitment to a purpose across everything that we do, whether that's our product, our packaging, our consumers, our employees. Um, Island, Island to, to me is a very accessible brand. It doesn't need to be explained. It can be viewed as a state of mind and, um, really represents an opportunity for people to take pause in, in their daily busy lives to, to reflect on, um, the kind of growth that they want to do personally and, yeah. and cannabis is as a, as a tool to, to, um, lead a healthy and happy life. Yeah. And what do you see as the next sort of big market? If you look at the current cannabis users, who, who are the, who are the incoming uh, segments of this market that, that you see happening over the next you know, 12, 24 months um, in terms of new, new frontier for the cannabis market? Sure. So uh, cannabis has such broad applicability that I, I think it really speaks to, or it could speak to anyone in any demographic or geographic area. I think what we're seeing in some of the data in, in states that are a little bit ahead of California as far as regulated markets concerned um, or at least, or at least uh, some of the data we're like, oh wow, that's interesting. Is just how how it skews to baby boomer and 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 the generation above them. So so cannabis is actually skewing pretty heavily as far as, as far as new entrants and participants mm-hmm. skewing pretty heavily into uh, you know the fifty plus crowd, which is which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and uh, and there's not a, there's not a ton of brands that we feel are really speaking to that audience very well today. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it's one of the fascinating things about cannabis. It ends up kind of touching so many different people so for so many reasons that the opportunity to educate, you know, these niche kind of segmented strategies is is quite extensive. So. Yeah, we, we look at it a lot like beer and wine. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a lot of applicability and accessibility, and uh, there's thousands of beer brands and thousands of wine brands, um, but there are, there are some brands that have captured more consumer audience and market share than others, and I think the same thing will happen here. Yeah. Ray, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about Island, what's the best place to get that information? The best place to go is www.island.co. 
and uh, they can learn about the team, the products, the brand, what we're building. And Bruce, thank you for the time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you for, for being on. I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes so people can click through and get it. Ray, this has been a pleasure. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Thanks, Bruce. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.